Hey guys, thanks for listening to this message from Soli Church. Our prayer is that this message would be a blessing and resource for you. But no sermon or podcast can ever take the place of being connected to a local church. If you're in or around the Ventura County area, we would love for you to join us. You can find when and where we're meeting by visiting solelychurch.com. S-O-L-I church.com. Rest in Jesus, Christian. Good morning. I've met all of you. So all of you know me. Um, but, you know, I, I'm one of the deacons here, obviously. And <clears throat> I just want to take the opportunity for those of you who are here to let you know that as one of the deacons, we love you guys um, with all our hearts. We, we serve you guys because we absolutely love you. Our hearts are for um, your joy. Our hearts are for the, uh, the benefit of this church. And so one of the ways I get to serve you this morning is by bringing the lesson today for the Sunday school. And the elders asked me to speak about the importance of meeting together. And so we're going to look at that. <clears throat> the importance of meeting together, or why the church gathered is not simply a good thing, but absolutely vital for our discipleship and the overall mission of God. To focus on the subject of why church is vital, obviously we must first understand what the church gathering actually is. I think most of us have developed some sort of reason why we come to church, whether it be because we were raised that way, or we know it's the right thing to do, or it's because it's good for our kids. Um, but hopefully, most of us come to the worship gathering for the sake of worship. If we were asked what the meaning of worship is, I think a lot of us would have varying different definitions to some degree or another. My goal today is to flesh out for us the, uh, and help fill out that structure of what the church gathering is a little bit. Our pastors have been doing a wonderful job establishing the church structure, and so my goal is just to supplement that. So we will spend some time developing out these three things. What is the church gathering? What is the church gathering for? And what should the church gathering look like? If you would, pray with me. Father God, I come before you and I ask that you would help us to see you throughout the narrative of the Old Testament to the New Testament, that as we look at what it is to gather as your people, that you would illuminate our hearts to what that means. I ask that you would, like you did to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that you'd enlighten us, God, that you would show us who you are, what you've been doing, and what we've been called into as your people. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, what is 
the church. The Greek word used for church in the New Testament is actually ekklesia. The definition of ekklesia is simply this, a gathering of those summoned or a called out assembly. Now, what is the assembly? Number one, it's used to describe an assembly of Christians gathered for worship in a religious meeting, like this, local. Number two, it's also used to describe the church gathering universal over the entire globe. And number three, it's also used to describe the assembly of faithful Christians already dead and gone, part of the eternal church. The other part of the definition above that really sticks out when studying is the called out portion to the assembly. Implicit in the definition of who we are as called out, gathered Christian is that we have not gathered locally here, universally on the earth or eternally in the heavens under our own volition. We've been summoned, we've been chosen, we've been called. That's important to get. That's the first thing we need to understand as the church gathered is that we've been called into this gathering. It's not because of our own wills. God is the one that has called us into this assembly. John 15, 16 says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We've been purposefully and graciously chosen to be his ecclesia. We are a called people. Charles Spurgeon, in his definition of the church assembly, said this, The Christian church is an assembly of faithful men, of men who know the truth, believe it, avow it, and adhere to it. The Greek word signifies an assembly summoned out of the whole population to exercise the right of citizenship. An ecclesia, or church, is not a mob, nor a disorderly gathering rushing together without end or purpose, but a regular assembly of persons called out by grace and gathered together by the Holy Spirit. Those persons make up the assembly of the living God. In order to a church, there must be a selection and a calling out, and that calling must come from God, who alone can call effectually. So the first thing about the gathering or ecclesia that we need to understand is this. We are called into this assembly, and God is the one who does the calling. The second thing I want to point out about the calling is this. Since God is the one who initiated that call, God establishes this gathering of believers. He is the one who has assembled, assembled us, means that the church is first and foremost an institution created by God and not by man. We don't gather here because we want to. It's, it's, it's God's institution. He said as much when he told Peter in Matthew 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Ecclesia, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It is absolutely vital that we understand this. You might say, why do we need to get this, or what does all that mean? Well, one thing that it means is that the gathering of the church is not an option. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, and let us consider how to stir up one another in good works, in loving good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are told specifically not to neglect meeting together. And all throughout the New Testament, we find scripture after scripture implying that the saints are meeting together regularly, both 
daily and weekly. A presupposition of saints gathering together constantly runs throughout the entire history of the church. Also, think about it. All the letters written to the, uh, in the New Testament from Paul, they're all written to what? They're written to churches, not individuals. If you were a Christian, but you never went to church, if you neglected to meet together with other believers, guess what? You weren't getting your own letter. Your inclusion into the fellowship of the saints, your spiritual maturity in growth and doctrine was undeniably bound up in your inclusion with the church, inclusion into his body. And that's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about when it talks about one body with many members. There are no solo digits in the kingdom of God. In the same way, generally speaking, there are no commando Christians. We are meant to be in community. F.F. Bruce says this, He is a member of the community which exists on earth to continue the ministry of the servant of the Lord. He shares a common life with others. He neither lives or dies to himself. The apostolic gospel, like the rest of the Bible, knows nothing of a solitary believer. And solitary believers, if they are solitary believers by their own choice, are mutilated believers, spiritually mutilated. This is important for us because it's biblical. But it's also important because like any other time in history, in our lifetimes that we've experienced, the option of attending church gathering has been threatened. The regulations and fear that have dictated the world for two years plus because of a virus indicates for us the desperate situation we are in need as a we are in as a church global the church ecclesia the gathering of the saints is not an option it is an institution created by god maintained and built by god god and only god has the prerogative to end that institution therefore no fear of politicians no law no persecution, no market crash, no famine, no storm, no drought, no threat of war, no virus, nor even the gates of hell shall prevail against the church that Christ has established. As we move forward into uncharted political territory, especially in our own country, we must have that truth rightly ordered in our hearts. COVID is not the first nor is it the last time that the institution of Ecclesia will be challenged. So that's the first thing. The church is a gathering of called people into an institution created by God. Secondly, we have just been called by God. We haven't just been called by God to gather. We have been called out to gather. Remember, ecclesia means a called out assembly. So what does God call us out of? He calls us out of the world. John 15, 19. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. He also calls us out of death, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, which says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He also calls us out of corruption from sin. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And he also calls us out of darkness. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we are a called out assembly of God's chosen people, his ecclesia, removed out of darkness and placed into his glorious light, into his church, which he instituted, gathering together for the purpose of what? Why do we gather here? Number two, what is our church gathering for? A deeper dive into the cultural history of the word ecclesia sheds a bit more light on the New Testament usage. And follow me here because I'm going to get a little bit dense, but the next few minutes are crucial to wrap our heads around uh, what this is all about and why we do what we do. In Jesus' day, they had a Hebrew Old Testament as well as a Greek Old Testament. The Greek Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew Old Testament and they called it the Septuagint. Jesus himself quoted the Septuagint multiple times. When the translators translated the Old Testament from the Hebrew to Greek, they sought for a suitable word to translate the Old Testament phrase, congregation of the Lord. And they chose the word ecclesia. In the Old Testament, ecclesia is used to describe the people of Israel as a sacred assembly when they were gathered before God as his covenant people. Its use explicitly recalls the foundation assembly at Mount Sinai when Israel had first gathered before God to be established as his covenant people. Deuteronomy refers to the significant day as the day of assembly and to Israel as the whole assembly. In both places, the Septuagint uses ecclesia to describe assembly. To be part of this ecclesia was to be part of the covenant people of God called to be a holy nation and a priestly kingdom for the sake of the nations, which is what the covenant at Sinai declared. The assembly of Israel, of Israel at Sinai was to reflect God's glory and embody his grace and truth, not only to preserve it as a witness, but to perpetuate it among the nations as well. Ecclesia at that time was actually a common Greek word, which simply meant, like we said earlier, it was, it was a, uh, a gathering of, an assembled gathering of people. But at that time, the New Testament, uh, because of its usage in the Septuagint, Ecclesia had become a theological notion grounded in the Sinai Covenant itself, missional at its core. Michael Goheen, in his book, A Light to the Nation, says this, the Old Testament Ecclesia is a people constituted and gathered by God and called to participate in his salvific work. But as Israel fails in this calling, Ecclesia comes to mean the eschatological community of God. The terminology is used in Judaic, Qumran, and apocalyptic literature of the intertestamental period to show that in the messianic age, it was expected that there would be a great gathering of God's people to Jerusalem where the congregation of the Lord would be reconstituted and God's law promulgated. There would be yet another great final covenant renewal when God's people would be assembled, ecclesia, once more. The eschatological people of God gathered in the last days would fulfill the calling given to the great assembly at Sinai. 
Thus, the early church refers to itself as the ecclesia, identifying itself as the eschatological people of God. When the new community in Jerusalem took up the concept of ecclesia then, it was thus showing that it understood itself as the eschatological fulfillment of that gathering at Sinai. It was now the sacred assembly gathered by God as his people to participate in his work as a holy nation. So when we place ourselves in the first century Jewish mind, familiar with the Septuagint usage of the word ecclesia, referencing Sinai, the day of assembly, it's impossible not to see the continuity of the covenant between the two Old and New Testament. So when Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church, my ecclesia, which is actually the first usage in the New Testament of the word church or ecclesia, he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So it's a loaded term. It doesn't simply mean church, the word as we know it. No, the disciples understood what the congregation of the Lord was and the implications that meant for the nations. They knew Jesus meant to fulfill the covenant, that he meant to gather to and for himself a people to perpetuate his glory, to bring about righteousness on all the earth with the express purpose of bringing all nations into ecclesia. So the church gathering, what is it for? Why are we here? We, the covenant people of God, now in Christ, are called to reflect God's glory and embody his grace and his truth. Not only to preserve it as a witness, but to perpetuate it among the nations. To be a holy nation and a priestly kingdom for the sake of the nations, which is exactly what 1 Peter 2.9 references when it says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's an undeniable evangelistic and eschatological progression implied here. The nations are the Lord's desire. He has a chosen people, a royal priesthood, to be discipled through the instrument of the church, equipped to do the ministry of discipleship among the nations. The church is clearly God's instrument of kingdom expansion. When we ecclesia, when we gather in Christ as his covenant people, we are entering into that promise. We are acknowledging our inclusion into that victorious work of world conquest that Christ is presently doing. That is what church is for, and that is the reason why it's necessary. Which brings us to number three. What should church, the church gathering look like? Knowing what, what we know about the ecclesia, who we are and what we're for, it's inconceivable to enter into the worship gathering with the blasé mindset. If we are a called out assembly of God's chosen people, removed out of the darkness and placed into his marvelous light, received and nourished by his church, which he instituted, there must be a right response in how we do worship. There must be a pattern to follow, a formula to order our service by. In combing through the New Testament, you'd be hard-pressed to find a specific definition of what that looks like. And again, there's continuity between the Old and the New Testament in the way that God deals with his people. There's a continuity in what he desires from his people. If we can see ourselves in the vein of ecclesia, if we can see the continuity in what God is calling us into, then we should be able to rightly discern what it is that God would desire from us regarding worship now. On this side of the new covenant, by studying what he desired then. What we practice at Soli Church 
is an attempt to rightly order our service using the same covenantal framework that God has always used when he enters into covenant with his people. Studying the covenant, whether with Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, or the new covenant, every covenant follows the same pattern. Number one, God calls and takes hold. Number two, God separates and makes something new. Number three, God speaks. Number four, God grants ritual signs and ritual seals. And number five, God arranges for the future. Now, going back to the Old Testament Sinai story, after the initial assembly, God continually assembled his people on significant occasions to remember that covenant, to renew that covenant at Sinai, restoring them to what they were called to do. W.J. Roberts, talking about these renewal-type services, says this, these assemblies are cast as re-echoes of the great assembly of Israel at Sinai. And when you look at our liturgy, which we're all familiar with, that God calls us, cleanses us, consecrates us, communes with us, and commissions with us, or commissions us, we have the same order, titled differently, but rooted in the same pattern. It's an attempt to re-echo, if you will, the same pattern by which God has always instituted covenant with his people. So if we're to fit solely structure into the covenant pattern, it would look like this. One, God calls and takes hold. That's our call to worship. Number two, God separates and makes something new. That's God cleansing us. That's our confession and our pardon. Number three, God speaks. That's God consecrating us by our scripture reading and our sermon. Number four, God grants ritual signs and seals. God communes with us. That's our communion. Number five, God arranges for the future. That is our commission section, which is our benediction and our sending out. This type of liturgy is called a covenant renewal worship service, which is just a form of historic reform worship. The call to worship at the beginning of the service and the commission at the end of the service act as bookends to the main part of the service, which are three main elements. And God commonly required that three kinds of sacrifices would be offered together whenever they are mentioned in Scripture. First, there was a guilt offering, which was the confession of sin. After that, there's this, the ascension or burnt offering, which is consecration. And then there's the peace offering, which is communion. And we can see this overall pattern in Leviticus 9, 2 Chronicles 29, and other places. We are told in Hebrews to offer up acceptable worship with reverence and awe, implying that there is a kind of unacceptable worship as well. Hebrews 12, verse 28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So when we structure our service this way, the attempt is being made to order our service in continuity with how God has always prescribed worship with his covenant people. Acceptable worship. So what does all this mean? I know I'm like super theological and trying to explain a lot of stuff here, but, and we can spend a, a ton of time breaking down our, our communion and why that's so special, uh, why the preaching of the word gathered together as his church is, is almost more important or more important than our, even our daily devotions. But really what I want us to get is this. Number one, we have been called into his presence. We don't need to beg him to be here. We don't need to ask him to fill this place or any of that. He has called us. 
We are His ecclesia. We are the congregation of the Lord. So let us enter into worship with that confidence. And number two, we have been called out of the darkness and into the light. We come into our gathering with the understanding that we are new creations. We have been made new. The light of the gospel, of the glory of Jesus Christ has been shown in our hearts and we can enter into his presence with thanksgiving. Number three, God has one ecclesia. The God of today is the same God as yesterday. The ecclesia of the Old Testament is the ecclesia of the new. And because of that, we gather not just as individuals, but as individuals which make up a glorious assembly. A people of God meant to love with one, love one another with a fierce love that when the world sees it, it marvels. An assembly being shaped and trained to be the royal priesthood of the world. One day we will look back on history and see the church as the vehicle in which God's promise of his glory filling the whole earth will have been accomplished by what we are doing here in this humble gym multiplied a thousand times over, spanning the entire globe. Which means, number four, your presence is necessary. When we rightly understand that the church is much bigger than us, it can, t- it can tempt us to wrongly think our presence doesn't matter. But nothing could be further from the truth. Our Christian culture has been molded by individualism. In a study I was just reading, released last Monday, sponsored by Ligonier Ministries, They surveyed thousands of self-proclaimed evangelical Christians, and they said that 66% of evangelicals say worship alone, just the singing of worship songs, is valid replacement for the church gathering. 66% said they don't need church for growth and maturity and discipleship. We're swimming in this. We're saturated in this idea. We have been told that we aren't part of something bigger than ourselves. We have been told that Christianity is not a religion, but a personal relationship. It's caused us to read the Bible through that lens. It's caused us to worship through that lens, even take communion through that lens. I spent most of my Christian life functioning from that mindset. Being an individual worshiper is not, that's what we're called to be. But we are called to be many of us individuals in one body. And so that whole mindset of this individualism has, has wreaked havoc. I know I, for myself, I liked my worship. I liked my worship with the lights down low so that I could have my own personal experience with God, just me and him. I like taking communion by myself. I like taking it, finding a quiet, special place by myself, taking it when I felt like it, sometimes not is really just catered to this individualism. I liked reading my Bible and listening for specific words for me and only me. Not really concerned about the context, not really concerned about what the Bible was actually saying and what it was telling me to do already. I was all about my individual experience and I'm not alone. Many of us have viewed our walks with Christ that way. But ultimately, at least in the context of the American church, it has hindered the mission of God because of it. J. Chase Davis writes, The American evangelical church has so exaggeratedly taught that the mission of God is a privatized and individual responsibility that it has successfully convinced a generation of American evangelical Christians that the church is unnecessary to the mission of God. 
I believe a right understanding of the ecclesia renders that notion impossible. So number five, which is my last point, what we do here in this gym matters. We have to understand that. We are God's people. God has no ecclesia B team. This is it. We're part of this grand thing. That being said, like Mink so perfectly preached a few weeks ago, let us sing. We're joining into the congregation of the Lord. We're called to worship the God who has created us and who has gathered us here. Let us offer prayers as incense to the Lord, trusting in full confidence that He is here and He hears His church. Let us make confession, trusting in the pardon purchased by His propitiation. Let us also take heed to the word, to the word preached and do it. Let us feast at the Lord's table and be nourished by it, remembering that along with baptism, it is the sign and seal of the new covenant for which God has arranged for the future of his church. And let us go forth from the gathering, rooted and built up for service, understanding that we are the church, his ecclesia, locally, universally, and eternally. And we are the vehicle that God has seen fit to usher in the renewal of his entire creation. And what a glorious calling that is. Thank you.